Welcome to Northridge Church. My name's Aaron Hickson. We're glad you're here. I'm the Henrietta Campus Pastor, and no matter where you're joining us from or online, we're just excited to be together in the second week of our series, Verified. And I don't know about you, but I am not a big social media guy, okay? I know I'm young and incredibly cool, so you assumed that I would be into the Insta-tweets, but um, I'm just, that's not what they're called, by the way. Uh, some of you are like, oh, it's real bad. Um, no, but that's, I don't know, I don't know if I just missed the wave or whatever it is, but I do know this, that uh, enough to know that if Twitter puts a little blue check next to someone's name, that's a big deal, okay? Because bl a blue check is Twitter's way of letting you know that this is indeed a real person's account, they verify that it's the right person, and that this person is a big deal. Because anybody can make a Twitter account and put something up as a profile picture and pretend to be someone else. So social media outlets, they verify like the big names, the, the famous people, um, to make sure that their accounts are real. So if you've got a blue check, that means that this person is real and also that they are famous because you don't get blue check verified if you're not a big deal. Like oddly enough, Twitter has not contacted me about whether or not I'm the real Aaron Hickson. Which, lucky for you, that means that you, sh you can and maybe should make fake accounts for Aaron Hickson, if you'd like. At Oliver Campus, right now, you can pull out your phone and make a fake Twitter. And I could argue all I want, but Twitter does not care about whether or not you make a fake account because I only have four followers and I'm pretty sure one of them is not my wife. Um, so that's good. So I'm really putting out good content there on my Twitter. But... Um, that's what Blue Check Verified is all about. It makes you let you know that they're real and that they are famous. But let me just say, wouldn't it be kind of nice if our faith was like that? Like, wouldn't it be kind of nice to know for sure where we are in our standing with God? Because sometimes if you're like me, it can feel like, well, there's not really like a scoreboard. I don't really know if I'm winning. I don't even know if I'm on the right team, to be honest. I've struggled with knowing whether or not I'm really a Christ follower. And maybe you are like this. You're like, you know, you're like me. Like, did I mean it when I said it before? Like, I can think of a time that I prayed a prayer, but did it really work? Or like, there was this one time where I had like a tingling sensation, but is that what I'm looking for? Or is there something else? I think we've all been there before. If you're, if you're a Christ follower, you want to be a Christ follower. It's like, I don't really know where I stand. No matter where you're listening from, you might have gone through something like this. You wonder whether or not you're legit, whether you're officially part of the family of God. And to be honest, that's a very unsettling feeling, to feel like I want to be following God, but I just don't know where the line is. Like, do I have it all squared away properly? And I'm so glad, personally, that when God has revealed himself to us, he hasn't done that in like a weird way. He's targeted weaknesses and, and problems he knew that we would have, and he's brought his truth to light and revealed himself in ways that can help us overcome these struggles. And that's what this letter, 1 John, that we've been walking through, is designed to do. It's designed to help us overcome this specific struggle. Struggle. It's a letter that helps ordinary Christians become blue check verified followers of Jesus Christ, where we can have assurance that we've got the real thing. And that's what we want for you here today, all, everyone listening. We want you to have that assurance, that verification. And, and so let, let's jump into what we have for this morning. In this series, uh, through the book of 1 John, we are looking through a letter that was written in the first century by a guy whose name was John. He was legit Jesus' best friend while he was here on earth, which is a pretty cool thing. And we're going to be spending our time in the second section of that letter, which is very uh, cleverly titled chapter 2 of this letter. 
Uh, so you can go ahead and open there to 1 John chapter 2, page 986. If you're using one of our Bibles or in your app or whatever, you can turn there and you can just park there. We're going to be there all morning and I think it'd be helpful if you can kind of see the whole chapter, how it fits together. So go ahead and turn there and leave your Bible right there. And in this portion of the letter, John is giving three tests of verification, three tests of authenticity. And if we run these tests, we can have more security related to our standing before God. But this morning, guys, there is a lot of ground to cover, okay? So instead of jumping right into those three tests of verification, what I want to do is pause and just give like the main point, the thesis of this chapter, and then we're going to outline how everything else that he says supports that thesis, and then we'll sort of jump into the test, okay? So main idea, whole structure, and then we'll get to the test. All right, let's jump in um, to just the main point of this section, okay? John starts off this section of the letter by reminding them his purpose for writing to his friends in the first place, and that is so that they can verify their faith. He just says it straight up. You'll notice throughout 1 John that he does not pull punches. He has very profound truths, but he writes in a very simple and very repetitive way. So hopefully it's easy to pick up on. And he begins in 1 John chapter 2, will be in verse 3. He says this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Wow, pretty simple, right? He's saying you can know, there is a way that you can know, and the way that you know is whether or not you keep his commands. Who is he? In this case, we're talking about Jesus. So if you wanna know, if you know Jesus, you ask yourself, am I keeping his commands? That's what that verse is saying. It's pretty clear, but he gets even clearer. Verse four, he says, whoever says, I know him, that's Jesus, but does not do what Jesus commands, He's a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. So basically the same thing, but this time he's even clearer about it. The way you know if someone is lying about whether or not they follow Jesus is whether or not they follow Jesus in obedience, right? And he's just restating over and over. In fact, he's going to do it one more time that this is his thesis statement for this section of the letter. In verse 5, he says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Okay, so we're a few verses into this chapter. John is pounding home the point. If you want to know if you're part of the family of God, you ask, am I obeying the commands of Jesus? I love how he says it at the end there. Are you living as Jesus lived? And so the main point of this entire chapter that we're going to be going over could be summarized this way. Obedience to Jesus is the best indicator of relationship with Jesus. Obedience to Jesus is the best indicator of relationship with Jesus. So if that's the thesis, the main point, I'm going to argue that the rest of the chapter is organized about how to flesh out this opening point. So I said we're going to do the main idea and then give you structure or outline. So let's jump into that. Um, This is how I see the chapter fitting together as a whole. I'm not saying this is a 100% perfect outline. This is just how I'm seeing it fit together, chapter 2 fits together. So it starts off, he makes this opening point, we have to keep his commands. That's how we know for followers of Jesus if we keep his commands. And then the next couple verses, um, he just says, guys, this ain't new. Okay, this ain't new. Jesus, John is writing about 60 years after Jesus has sort of done his thing on earth. And he's, John's making the point. He's like, guys, look, we've been saying this from the beginning. Like, since Jesus started, we've been saying the same thing. So this ain't new. And then he gives three tests of verification, which we already mentioned. We're going to get to those in just a little bit. Three tests to verify your faith. Then he comes back to this idea. No, seriously, guys, this ain't new. Like, this is what we've been saying. This is Jesus' whole deal. 
And then he closes this section with a quick PS. He's like, hey, look, stick with Jesus. Don't be fooled by anybody. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Stick with Jesus. There is no alternative. Okay, so that's kind of the whole chapter in, in summary form. Let's zoom in on the three tests and see what his three tests were that he gave them. These are three pass-fail tests that he says that you can run to figure out if you're living out the main point of this chapter. If you're living as Jesus did, here's three ways the test that you can run. The first one is love like Jesus. The first test is love like Jesus. That's um, in verses 9 through 11. And what he says is like, do, look, do you love your brother and sister the way that Jesus did? If you don't, he's saying, look, I'm a little suspicious of your faith. You're not going to get blue check verified status. You can't claim you live like Jesus if you don't follow his command to obey your brothers and sisters in Christ in the family of God. Look, you got to love like Jesus. That's the first test. Then the second one, verse 15 through 17, he gives another test. And this is one is about how we handle temptation. We need to resist like Jesus. We need to live like Jesus did. So when it comes to temptation, which is what that section's all about, he says we need to resist like he did. You can't get blue check verified status if you love the world that opposes everything that Jesus stood for. And we're going to spend the rest of our time on that test, so I, I won't say any more now. And then in verses 18 through 23, he gives the third test. And this is whether or not you're willing to associate or remain with Jesus. And this is mostly about your belief system. Like, do you believe that things that Jesus said about himself? If, if you deny that Jesus was telling the truth when he claimed he was the son of God, you can't be his follower. You're not going to get blue check verified status if you're not willing to be associated with the one that this is all about in the first place. We've got to remain with Jesus. So the three tests in those different verses are to love like Jesus, resist like Jesus, and remain with Jesus. Those are the three tests. So we're going to zoom out one more time, okay? I'm going to give you the whole outline of the entire chapter. Thanks for sticking with me. I'm going to have even less screen, I mean, space on the screen to exist, okay? I'm going to like squish here a little bit. But this is the full picture of the chapter, okay? He makes his point. We've got to live like Jesus. We've got to obey his commands. He says, this ain't new, guys. Um, then he jumps into the test, the first test, love like Jesus. I didn't mention it before, but in between test one and two, there's like this rat break um, where he like busts some rhymes about the importance of assurance and that kind of thing. It's this great poem. Check it out sometime in between um, test one and two. And then he gives test two and three, comes back to the idea, seriously, guys, this ain't new. And then finally, P.S., don't be fooled, stick with Jesus. Wow. Okay, that's a lot, right? A lot to digest of this chapter. Thanks for sticking with me. But here's the thing. That is just a bare bones outline. So what I would encourage you to do this week is take this outline. We will send it to you in your email via the equip email, which you can sign up for on your connections card right now if you want. And we will send this to you. And I would encourage you this week, read through 1 John 2 with this outline and see if you think I got it right. Or see if you think there's a better framework. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Now, as you're reading through any book of the Bible, it's incredibly helpful to know what point the author is kind of trying to make in this section and where they put their points. Outlines are available, whether online or in any good study Bible. And no outline is perfect. Mine certainly isn't. But it just helps me read so much more carefully if I understand what's going on around the verses that I'm reading. So that's kind of the, the outline for 1 John 2. But for the sake of time today, we are not even going to attempt to touch all three of those tests. Instead, I'm just going to focus in on the test that's not repeated for the rest of the letter. And let the other chapters kind of reiterate the points he's making in test one and test three. John is pretty simple. He's pretty repetitive. Don't worry, we're going to come back. You won't miss anything because those other two tests are very much repeated throughout the letter. So we're going to focus in on test number two to verify our faith, resist like 
Jesus. I personally think it's the hardest one to understand, and it also has some life-changing analysis, I think, about why we choose sin in the first place. So let's go ahead. Let's jump in. We're going to spend the remainder of our time on how to resist like Jesus. Now, as we're reading these verses, I want you to know, you're not going to hear anything that explicitly says, hey, this is how Jesus resisted sin. But remember, we said that the whole section is how to live like Jesus, and this subsection is about how to resist the importance of resisting sin. So if we've got to live like Jesus, we have to resist sin. I'm saying let's bring it together. Let's resist like Jesus did. That's why I put the heading on it. Okay. Hopefully we're good. Let's take a deep breath. Now let's go after it. Look at the second test. It's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He starts off by giving a really clear command. He says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now that is some pretty strong language. So let's make sure we know what he's saying. I mean, right now he is throwing it down. He's saying, if you, don't, if you love the world, you do not love God. And that's like, whoa, that's real serious. So I want to get it right, wouldn't you? Like if you're a Christ follower here today, my first question would be, what in the world is the world? Like if I can't love it, I want to make sure I know what it is because I, I don't want to get this wrong. And we're going to give a quick ex- explanation now as to what the world means. But actually every week of this series, we're doing an extra podcast that we're releasing on Tuesday of every week. And this week's going to be focused on more background information on what John means when he uses the word world throughout his writing. And if you haven't gotten these podcasts yet, Mark released one last week on Tuesday. It was awesome. You can check the box on your connections card. It's just got extra info that we couldn't possibly jam into any church service, no matter how long it was. So it's just extra info. We're giving it a shot. Check out that podcast. Hopefully that's helpful to you. They're kind of bite-sized information that we can all process during the week. So that's all about defining the word world. Um, You can just access that on the app. I forgot to mention that. The Northridge app has it right in there. And by the way, if I start hearing that podcast from last week playing while I'm preaching, I'm just going to assume Mark Nelson is more interesting than me. And I won't be offended, I promise. And I'll be very offended. Henrietta, if I hear about any podcast playing over there, you're going to be in trouble. I'm watching you digitally. This is very creepy. Okay. Um, So what is the world? What does John mean by that? Well, in John's way of thinking and writing, he mainly uses that term to just refer to the system of thinking that our culture has adopted, that has been influenced and infiltrated by sin and by Satan. So the world just means anything and everything that is anti-God. That's what John means, anything and everything that is anti-God. So John, what he's not saying in Do Not Love the World is not that you can't love nature walks or people or your house or technology. Okay, that's not what this is. In fact, Mark mentioned last week that this whole letter was written in response to a group of Christians who were saying that everything physical was bad. So we know for sure that's not what John means. He was commanding them not to be obsessed with what our anti-God culture is obsessed with. In fact, Jesus himself actually said something super similar. John was nice enough to capture that quotation from Jesus. And in this quote from Jesus, he's actually praying out loud to God for his disciples. And we can, ca- we can see that in John chapter 17 is recorded for us. Here's what Jesus' prayer was. It says, my prayer is not that you would take them, that's his disciples, out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, that's that same word, even as I am not of it. Here, Jesus is saying that his disciples, they're physically in the world, like they live on this planet, but they're saying they're not of the world, meaning they're not products of its way of thinking or living. 
And that's what John is referencing here in 1 John. He, he might have literally been recalling this prayer from Jesus when he wrote it. And he's telling his friends, look, don't love or value, don't chase what our culture is chasing. If you do, if you choose to value those things, if you choose to be of the world, as Jesus would say, then you can't possibly love God. How could you love those things that are anti-God and then claim that you love God himself? It doesn't make sense. So he continues on with this test in verse 16. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they come not from the Father, but from the world. In other words, God does not produce or value anything that overlaps even a little bit with the system of our world. And that makes sense, right? Because it's everything anti-God. That's the whole definition of the world. And he mentions three things in particular that are sort of representative of everything bad in our broken world. He calls it the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are basically the root cause of everything evil that our world produces. It's like the, the spring from which everything evil is just like oozing and bubbling out. And that might seem like kind of weird words, you know, what, lust of the flesh and the eyes, what, what does all that mean? So I think we can shorten them down to our three weaknesses. You'll see this further down on your program. We're going to jump ahead a little bit for these three blanks. But our three weaknesses, you could just say they are pleasure, possessions, and position. The lust of the, lust of the flesh, that's pleasure. Lust of the eyes, that's possessions. And then the pride of life, that's position. We're going to come back to those, but those are three things that John had identified as the place where our world system starts in order to produce the evil that is all around us. And John believes that as people who are trying to live as Jesus did, we cannot love those things. We cannot be overtaken with attraction to them. Why is that? Well, he says it in the next verse, John 2.17, 1 John 2.17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. All that our society has to offer has an expiration date, and it's coming fast. Our world is so enthralled with the here and with the now that they've completely lost sight of the fact that there even is a then, that there is an eternity that we're all headed toward, and that none of the things that our culture values will be relevant there. So what John is urging his friends is do not become obsessed with the things that are temporary. Do not allow yourself to fall in love with something that won't matter in the end. If you want to live like Jesus, that's the whole point of this section, you want to demonstrate your love for God, then don't fall in love with a system that he opposes in every way. That's the essence of test number two. What he's calling his friends to ultimately do is just love what lasts. Love what lasts. Love God. Love the people that God has sent into your life. Remember, that's what test number one is all about, is loving people. Love Jesus, the one who died to give you a relationship with the Father. If you want to live as Jesus did, or get blue check verified status, then love serving others as a way to demonstrate your love for God. That's what we should be loving, not these temporary obsessions of our small-minded culture. And now that sounds fine, right? Maybe that even sounds good. But how do I do it? Right? How do I avoid living in this way that he's describing? And if we want to pass this test of verification, if we want to live like Jesus, so that's the whole point of this section, then how do we avoid these temptations? I would say, I guess very simply, we just need to resist like Jesus. And again, that's good, fine, but how do I do that? Like, what would I do if I was to resist like Jesus? Thankfully, those who knew Jesus best actually recorded a time when he was tempted and what he did to resist that temptation. 
So I want to take a look at it and see if we can learn something. I'll retell these details for you if you want to read it later this week. We, it's found in Matthew chapter 4. We've got the verses there on your program if you want to check it out later this week. Um, but I just want to tell you this story. It's a scene in Jesus' life where he's tempted. And what happens is that he actually encounters an attack of temptation from Satan himself in person. Yikes. Okay? It's like dun, dun, dun. But it gets worse, though, because the devil is so strategic. He waits until Jesus has been on a multiple-week fast before attacking him, which is kind of like the worst possible scenario if you're someone who's trying to resist sin. Am I right? A personal attack from Satan after you haven't eaten for weeks? What? If I go more than a few hours without eating something, I'm going to snap at someone, and then I'm going to be like, oh, sorry, I was just hangry, right? But if I, like a couple of weeks without food, I don't know about you, a couple of weeks without food for me, I would not need a personal visit from the devil to choose sin. It would, just, it would just come quite naturally, I'm sure of that. But this gets even harder, because if you look at these three temptations that the devil brings against Jesus, they are exactly in line with the three weaknesses we noticed earlier. He brings three temptations, and they line up perfectly with what he knows are the three weaknesses of Jesus' humanity. He tempts him first to eat bread, to break the fast that he had been called on. That's pleasure. He tempts him to use his position as the son of God to throw himself into harm's way so that angels would have to rescue him. That's position. And then he tempts him with the possession of being in control of all of the kingdoms of the world. He nails all three of those weaknesses. And I think it's incredibly profound that the devil brings his best weapons to bear against the greatest weaknesses of Jesus' humanity. That is an insane set of temptations right there. But the story doesn't end because Jesus doesn't give in. I mean, he faces the temptation. He doesn't even falter a little bit. He doesn't even skip a beat. He perfectly resists. So how did he do it? Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jesus just simply responds to these temptations with passages from the Bible that he had memorized. The same Bible that you and I have access to. He took truths from it and leveraged them against his enemy as his defense. That's how he took on the most tempting situation ever and won. So I'm over here going, look, if I'm trying to resist temptation like Jesus, I'm going to follow that blueprint. That seems pretty much wildly successful. If it works when you're weeks into not eating and Satan himself shows up to tempt you, I'm guessing it's going to work when I'm like driving home from work on a beautiful sunny day with an iced coffee and a rude driver cuts me off. Right? Like, oh, poor Aaron. Yeah, really tough situation there. What we learn from Jesus' own ability to resist temptation is that the truth of God's word is more powerful than temptation. The truth of God's word is more powerful than temptation. That's what we learn about resisting, like Jesus. So, So let's leverage that truth. Let's use that. Let's see if God's word is powerful enough to stand up to our three weaknesses today. And first, I just want to talk about why it seems that we all have these same three weaknesses that John outlines. Remember, John said that these three weaknesses are pleasure, possessions, and position. Pleasure, possessions, and position. And they're like the root issue of all these issues that you and I have got. And I want to validate that idea for us a little bit and see what it might mean. Um, Because think about it. Like, what's your regular sin struggle? What's that thing that, like, you seem to come back to? Maybe it's one thing. Maybe it's like 50 things if you're like me. You can't seem to beat. And it affects you at work and maybe at school and with your family. And you come back and back to the same sin struggle. What is it? Like, think of it right now. Get it in your head. Sort of prep it in your your tip of your tongue. You're thinking of your sin struggle. Now I want you to get, like, a little bit philosophical here for a second. 
Think about your motives for that sin problem. And think, could you tie them back, the motivations for that sin, could you tie them back to one of these three categories of pleasure, possessions, or position? Could you do it? And I would say, you most definitely can. In fact, I would say 100% of the sin struggles that have ever existed can be boiled down to one of these three motivations. And if you're not buying it, then I would say, all right, let's have a challenge. Anyone at any of our campuses, if you can think of a sin struggle that you can boil down to so that something that doesn't fit in these three categories, email me this week with that sin struggle, and if I agree with you, I will personally buy you a gift card to your favorite restaurant. Okay? Seriously, do it. Bring it up. Let's go. And if you just got excited about that challenge, I'm going to suggest you struggle with pleasure and possessions. <laughs> so, oh yeah. <laughs> Come on, I'm finally right. All right, Um, but see what I mean? I mean, these are rampant in our hearts and lives. It seems like we've got three gaping holes in our armor against temptation. And you might not struggle with all three. Maybe one is worse than another. But the thing is, the part of you that wants to rebel against God, it knows exactly which one you struggle with. And so it just pokes and digs and cuts at you right in that area over and over and over again. But why is it that those are the three areas that are so prevalent? I mean, John's onto something here, right? Wouldn't you say? Thousands of years ago, he cut through all our labels and our lies and our masks and our diagnoses, and he puts his finger right on our struggle. Why is that? Well, it's, I think it's because these three areas are the root problem because they're tied to the three most basic things that we believe that we need in our broken condition. We've got these three things listed on your program. I think our three needs are, first of all, that I need to feel good. That's what I believe. I believe that I need to have good things and that I need to be important. Those three needs gnaw at me. And whether or not we truly need these things, I believe that we're all running around with gaping holes in our souls that perfectly fit the shape of those questions. It's like we're desperately running around with a bucket of water that we're trying to fill with the water of happiness, but this bucket's got three gaping holes, and they're the feelings that I need good things, that that I need to feel good, and that I need to be important. Maybe one of those holes is bigger for you than another one, but we can't seem to stop the water from gushing out of the bucket because we have no adequate answers to the needs that scream for our attention. I need to feel good. I need good things. I need to be important. So what in the world are we supposed to do? If all of humanity is hardwired with these massive holes and beliefs in our souls, how can we possibly overcome them? I would say we need to simply resist like Jesus. What what did Jesus do when he was tempted? Well, he believed that the truth of God's word was more powerful and enduring than his temptation. And so when the the attacks of the enemy came screaming in against those three specific weaknesses, he fought back and he won. He fought back with the truth of God's word. And I believe that we must do the same. I believe that we will find the solution to the holes in our souls when we look squarely at the truth of the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he offers to us freely perfection instead of brokenness and family instead of hostility. And all of this comes freely through his grace to those who place their trust in him. And that gospel, I believe, is perfectly situated to answer the three weaknesses and to fill our three needs. And it answers them with three specific truths. And the first answer to the need that I must feel good is this, that Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction. Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction. 
I believe that we find in a relationship with Christ a satisfaction both currently and for forever that is much more satisfying than sex or experiences or family relationships or a high on any substance or any vacation that you could ever imagine, any mountaintop experience that you could manufacture. In the gospel, the gaping hole of the need to feel good is answered in the most satisfying way imaginable in the person of Christ. If you need to feel good, then you need the ultimate satisfaction found only in Jesus. The second thing, the answer is the need that I need to have good things, is that in Jesus I have all that I need. In Jesus I have all that I need. I firmly believe that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But everything minus Jesus is nothing at all. There is no evidence in a single person's life in all of human history that whoever dies with the most toys wins. That's a ridiculous theory. In fact, if you pay attention at all, you will quickly discover that those with the most things end up with the most pain as it dawns on them that their emptiness has grown with every purchase that they've made. That every car and house and piece of tech has sucked away their soul and left them surrounded by stuff but completely devoid of a single thing that matters. But in Jesus, you will be given, both now and for eternity, everything you need that actually matters. And the final one, the answer to our need to be important is this, that as God's child, I have ultimate recognition. I have ultimate recognition. You can't fathom a title greater than child of God. I don't care how high you climb on that corporate ladder. I don't care what your alma mater is. I don't care how many followers you have on all the social media. I don't care how big the budget is for the company that you built and you run. There is not a title, a position, accomplishment that even holds a candle to the acceptance, security, and the value of being included in the family of God. And so for all of eternity, as you revel in the presence of God that you call your dad, you will laugh at the absolutely childish and ridiculous positions that you thought would matter in your temporary brief life on this earth. We have in the gospel patches for the holes in our soul. We have in the truth of God's word a solution to our greatest weaknesses. And we have in Jesus an example of how to wield those truths against our greatest weaknesses. So what's your step today? Let me briefly give three suggestions for me and for all of us this week as we move forward. We all want to verify our faith, right? I mean, we all want to pass those tests, not because somehow we could earn the blue check, no. We've been given the blue check, and we want to ensure that our lives reflect the status we've already been given freely by God in his grace. So what do we do to live out the call to resist like Jesus? I would say it this way. First of all, identify your weak spot. Identify your weak spot. Which of the three major weaknesses is your weakest? Take some time this week. Think about it. Like maybe write it down. Like know it. I mean, there's no shame in this, right? We all struggle with them. So just pick it. Wouldn't it be nice to know where the attacks are going to come? Just own your weak spot. Identify it. Next, target that weakness with truth. The gospel is perfectly situated to bolster you in that weak area. Lean into the truths that you need to resist like Jesus. If you don't know what truths will help, that's great. Talk to somebody in your community group. Talk to your community group leader. Email your campus pastor. Go to our website, northridgeequip.com. Take some steps to get the help that you need. Nothing would would, would be better for the people around you than an opportunity to help you target your weakness with the truth of God's word. We all need to do this. 
Target our weaknesses with the truth of the Bible. And then finally, reinforce it with guardrails. Once you're working on the root issue of your weakness with the truth of the Bible, put some practical guardrails in place to help you from running off the rails. If it's possessions, if you're inclined to go into debt to get that next thing, then get a budget. Cut up your credit card. Take Financial Peace University. If you're all about position, then I would say look for a serving role behind the scenes. Look to serve other people with no hope of recognition or accolades. Help others without any expectation of being affirmed. If it's pleasure, get some software accountability on your computer. Why are you living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Let's not be dumb about our weaknesses. We've got major weaknesses. We need to target them with truth. That's the solution. But in the meantime, let's put up some guardrails. Only then can we plug the holes in our soul. Can we truly love what lasts? And when we do that, we can pass test number two. Not because we somehow earned our way into heaven. No, that is literally the opposite of the gospel. But by passing these tests of verification, it allows us to better feel the security that we already have in God's love. So verify your faith today. Run these diagnostics on your own heart and life and see what you find. Because then, family, then we can rest in the security that comes from knowing that we are verified. We are part of the family of God. Let's pray. Our Father who's in heaven, thank you for making us part of your family. Thank you for allowing us to call you dad, for bringing us into relationship with you. This week, we want to target our weaknesses with truth. We know we've got them. We're not so dumb as to think that we don't have issues. And we know that in your word, you've given us the solution. And in your son, you gave us the example. So we pray to you today that you would give us the strength this week to lean into truth, to bolster weakness. In Christ's name, amen.